This is Bloomberg Best. Bloomberg Radio is everywhere. Always accurate and precise. Bloomberg's really one of the places that's reporting facts. Your communication capabilities are wonderful for our business. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. On this special Juneteenth holiday edition of Bloomberg Best... The importance of directing capital more equitably. If you don't have access to capital, you don't grow. The shortage of capital flowing to women. Capital is the blood of a company, and if you don't have access to it, how are you able to scale a company to like a Google or an Apple or something of this nature? And the risk of AI when it comes to directing that capital. We need to really focus on actual harms being experienced by real people today. And voices from the LGBTQ plus community. Over 40% of young people go back in the closet when they start their first job. Bloomberg Best, Bloomberg's Best Stories of the Week, powered by 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries around the world. Ed, June is Pride Month, and also the month of the Juneteenth holiday. Right, Denise, and we have the opportunity to have wide-ranging conversations with our guests about a variety of related topics. That's right, Ed. And we kick things off here with Lisa Osborne-Ross. She is U.S. CEO at Edelman, and she's talking here about the Trust Barometer Business and Racial Justice Report. And here she is with Bloomberg's Matt Miller and Katie Greifeld about addressing racial inequities, not only in the South, but all over the country. Look, the research is critical because this, whether it should be or not, is an emotional issue. And the reason we do it is because the data matters. There's a wide range of feelings on this. There's defeatism to defensiveness. There's, in some cases, even an outright disagreement on whether racism even exists or not. Now, I'm happy to report that um, less than 15% of those polled believe that racism is not a problem. But um, uh, the example that you just gave is, you know, we live in two different worlds. You were shocked uh, by the Supreme Court's movement, but others live that on a daily basis, and they're not shocked at all. I well, think it's even. No, you go ahead. No, I mean, no. There's just, there was only one black congressional district in Alabama. That's what blew me away. I mean, yeah. um, you know. <laughs> There needs to be more representation. I've been to Alabama. There needs to be more representation there, right? So how come the Supreme Court didn't I, make this decision in the 60s? Right, right. You and I both know that there are enough black people in Alabama for that to not be the case. But that is, uh, that is it's related to this conversation, but it is part and parcel of the environment that many people still live in. And it is problematic. I, I was... I was struck when we saw the results of this research because I think people had one of four reactions. One, people were like, tell me something I didn't know. Racism exists, fully exists in corporate America. Other people were like, you know what? I knew it. I felt it, felt it, felt it, but I couldn't put my finger on it and the data supported it. A third group of people were like, oh my God, this is shocking, this is terrible. I don't know where those people have been, but for some people it was still very surprising. And most unfortunately, there's a fourth group of people who have said, okay, it simply doesn't matter because nothing is going to change. Mm. Mm. And I mean, looking through the results uh, of this report, uh, you talk about two different worlds. It seems like there's a real sort of divergence between what executives 
think their company is doing or the progress that they've made and what non-executives say. Uh, when we talk about making progress in addressing racism, it seems like the executives uh, have a much different view on that than maybe the people that report to them. Bingo. I fell into that second category of, you know what? I thought that there was a problem inside the organizations that um, I work with and that I counsel and then just everything that I see. And what you said is exactly it. The executives are feeling good about themselves. They're like, hey, I go to my DEI training. I have I mentor uh, people of color. I'm supportive. I'm anti-racist. But the rank and file see things very, very differently. And the reason that we're not making progress is that those executives who are in decision-making roles, they think they're doing well and don't have a problem, but the rank and file sees every day that we have a significant problem. And that to me was the most shocking. So um, why do executives think that they're doing well then? I mean, um, is it just that they're checking boxes here and not actually moving the ball forward? I mean, I, I don't understand. Yes, there's a lot of box checking, but also if you look at it, we've been having this conversation about racism and particularly racism in the workplace for some time. After the murder of George Floyd, the nation had a, a reckoning. They had a reckoning and for many people, this was the first time that re they really started to pay attention to the conversations. They started to look at their teams and realize and recognize that their teams were not representative. They started to look at their leadership at their boards and they saw that they were not representative. And you know, there's been all this conversation about like a retraction on ESG and particularly the S in ESG. I have seen and said that those companies that got it in the first place, who were about it, who were not running DEI programs, but looking at representation at all levels of their organization, they haven't stopped. In fact, they are even stronger. Those organizations who, for whatever reason, FOMO, peer pressure, oh, everybody's doing it, so I guess I should too, those are the organizations that have pulled back. But those that were in it in the first place, they're even stronger in this space. So Lisa, how does this problem get fixed? I mean, is the obvious answer here that perhaps, you know, those at the executive rank should maybe look like the people that they represent, that we need more diversity in management? Or what do you think really needs to happen to propel this conversation forward? I think one, it's some honest conversation. For example, when I am interviewing people and they tell me how much they value DEI and how important it is to them, the first question I ask is, I think that's lovely, that's important how diverse is your senior team? How many people of color do you have on your senior team that are in decision-making roles? And so I think moving it from the box checking to the narrative, and I say this to my team at Edelman, you cannot credibly create content, you can't credibly create campaigns, you can't represent a point of view unless you have a representative team in this, in this current day. You've got 43% of the population that is non-white, uh, non-male, non-straight. And that was Lisa Osborne Ross, U.S. CEO at Edelman, with Bloomberg's Matt Miller and Katie Greifeld. And we also heard from Harold Butler, Citigroup Global Markets Head of Diverse Financial Institutions Group on racism, finance, and historically black banks. And he tells Bloomberg's Matt Miller and Carol Masser, historically black banks play an important role 
in helping address racial inequities. Let's listen in. During the number of years prior to these events that we've talked about, such mm-hmm. as the murder of George Floyd and how the whole industry sort of changed, it's, it was a tough world, right? And now it's still tough, but it is changing because the banks do have capital. Prior to, you know, there wasn't capital to do things, right? And so people oftentimes ask me, well, how come there are black financial institutions that have been around for 100 years and they, they remain under a billion dollars in assets, for example? Yeah. Right? And then I like to say to the history lesson thing, I said, well, if you were denied capital markets, if you couldn't play in the capital markets, you'd be the same way, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's a vicious cycle, right? And if you don't have access to capital, you don't grow, right? And if you don't grow, you cannot offer the communities that you serve services and things like that. So, you know, it's, it has been a... Because it gets exponential. It does. Right? If, a ba- if they're able to lend out and you, and you keep going, it's just the growth. That's right. That's right. That's right. So what can be done about it? Yeah. You uh, are at City. Can you do you work with them? We are do. you competitors? Um, Definitely not competitors. Right. So we've taken. We're actually you're so gigantic. We're, in, well, in, in, we're not. Relative. You are gigantic. We're, we're not that big. You're, right? you're, I'm gigantic. <laughs> waistline, maybe a little bit. But you're what we consider one of the big banks. Well, we, we are a big bank. Right. And I'm thankful we're a big bank because we're able to do things in a unique way. Yeah. And we're the first, really, maybe you didn't know this, um, so I'm happy to tell you this. We're the only bank still on the street, the first to actually create a dedicated business unit, Diverse Financial Institutions Group, that's focused at the minority deposit institution, to include broker-dealers and asset managers, because they're part of the equation as well. Absolutely. Right? And so our mission, our focus really has been to get to communities underrepresented, right, underinvested communities through these financial institutions in a way that, you know, we can help those banks attract investment to a community to get rid of food deserts, which helps people eat more healthy so they don't go to the doctor and you know, as right. much. It's a, you said earlier, vicious, it's a vicious cycle. That was Harold Butler, Citigroup Global Markets Head of Diverse Financial Institutions Group with Bloomberg's Carol Masser and Matt Miller. And coming up, the role of artificial intelligence in investing capital. You're listening to a special Juneteenth holiday edition of Bloomberg Best. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. Ed, June is Pride Month, Equality Month. And of course, it's also the national holiday, Juneteenth. So this is all sparking some deep discussions here at Bloomberg, including some deep dives into issues of equity and capital flows. And we're going to turn now to artificial intelligence and look at the role of generative AI in making the decisions behind investing capital. And for that, we go to Meredith Broussard, NYU professor and author of More Than a Glitch, and Angel Bush, founder of Black Women in AI. And here they are with Bloomberg's Caroline Hyde and Romaine Bostick on Bloomberg Equality, starting with Meredith Broussard. One of the things that's really important to keep in mind is that AI is just math. It's really complicated, beautiful math. And so we 
tend to get excited about talking about these existential risks and the robot takeover and the you know, huge financial potential. But we need to really focus on actual harms being experienced by real people today. And so people are really suffering as a result of bias in AI, especially in financial decisions. Like if an automated mortgage approval system makes a decision against uh, approving somebody for a mortgage, that's a way that somebody is experiencing a harm from AI. What's interesting, your previous book, Artificial Unintelligence, talk, talked about techno-chauvinism, a blind belief in the superiority, superiority of tech, but also it goes around to sort of the auditing of all of this. And Angel, I want to bring you in here because you are building a community of trying to ensure that the right people are at the table when it comes to assessing the data that things are being built on, or indeed helping build artificial intelligence out at certain companies and communities. How are you hiring corporate America react to this? Well, when it comes to um, what we're doing in particular, as far as black women in AI and corporate America, we're working with our partners at NVIDIA to teach black women in particular uh, machine learning and data science. We're working with Capital One to better understand the hiring process, interview techniques and case studies, because we have to start with the basics. And we also are working, most importantly, with the University of Houston uh, Computational Biomedicine Lab, which we have a three-year commitment to award uh, research assistantships. And so when we're talking about working within AI and we're talking about the corporate response, we've re received an overwhelming response of support in making sure that we provide that access and that opportunity through the initiatives that we've created. Hey, Angel, can you give us a little sense here about the particular sectors, the industries there that have already started to embrace this, the ones that you anticipate that over the next few years will be the broadest adopters of this technology? I think the biggest adopters real, really will be, um, and the biggest impact we will see in employment and education. And what's really important in that is we have to start working at the state level in particular to ensure that the curriculum includes artificial intelligence and not included or seen as an elective. Because when artificial intelligence is seen as an elective, then only certain school districts will be able to afford that yeah. access. So when we're talking about impact, we're definitely seeing it in the education sector. Uh, Meredith, I'm going to bring you back into this conversation here, and I don't want to make this too personal, but we talk about the industries that will utilize this. And we should point out there are several industries that have been utilizing it, particularly in the healthcare space. And I went through some healthcare challenges last year, and I was interested in seeing how they went about the diagnosis over a months, months long period here, and how much of that of course, involved the doctor, involved the humans, but also did involve, I guess, what can be considered AI to a certain extent? Mm -hmm. Well, I went through my own health challenges uh, a few years ago. Uh, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And one of the things that I saw as I was going through my electronic me medical record was I saw a note that said, this scan was read by an AI. Mm -hmm. And I thought, wow, what did the AI find? Who built the AI? What kind of bias is in this AI? And then of course, because I had cancer, I forgot about it. But uh, then I came back to it later. And what I did was an experiment. Yeah. I took an open source uh, AI 
cancer detection algorithm. Right. Uh, and I ran my own scans through it to see if it would detect my breast cancer. And I did that as a way of writing about the state of the art in AI-based cancer detection. Well, I, I'm curious if I could just follow on that real quickly here, because one of the reports that I got, and I went through a, a cancer treatment myself, and one of the reports I got back was kind of alarming. And it's similar, no, there was a notation there that let it be known that, this, that the results were sort of generated by that. So of course I go, I call the doctor, and they kind of told me to calm down. They said, oh, this isn't that bad. But I raised the question as to why send me something like that that I clearly don't understand, mm -hmm. that at least on the surface looks very, it looked alarming. Mm -hmm. um, why not use the human being in that situation to communicate what was a very sensitive result? Oh, I would much rather get test results from my doctor mm -hmm. and be able to uh, to talk with them immediately. Mm -hmm. That thing where the test results get delivered in your portal and you see them before you talk to the doctor, like that gives me a lot of anxiety. I know there are people out there who really like to get their test results first. Mm -hmm. I am not one of them. So really better design would be for people to have that option, mm -hmm. right? But one of the ways, one of the problematic ways that people design AI is uh, the developers decide, okay, this is the way it's gonna be and then they just roll that out to everybody. Mm. Well, there's a lot of variation among people, and so it's a lot better to give people options. Meredith, just sticking with you for a second, algorithmic auditing is something you're relatively optimistic about. It exists. So when we're talking about how already AI is being applied, and we thank you both for sharing your stories there, when you're thinking about the ethical way in which of applying it, you think basically we need to run more, more tests on the data, ensure that we're putting not garbage in ultimately. Mm. We, we are putting a lot of garbage in. I mean, ChatGPT, for example, is trained on data scraped from the internet. The internet is so wonderful and it's so toxic, mm. right? Uh, so the Washington Post has done this really interesting investigation where you can actually look at these sites that are used to train ChatGPT and BARD and a lot of the other uh, generative AI systems, right? But algorithmic auditing shows a lot of promise. And that is a process that algorithmic accountability reporters like me use in order to open up black boxes, yeah. investigate algorithms, look at the inputs, look at the outputs, and actually measure how much bias is in this system. Mm. Right? We're not doing enough of that now, uh, and we really need to do more. It's a growth industry. Ultimately, the underlying problem, Angel, is society, actually. The bias is baked into society and therefore gets amplified in the data that it's used on. You are trying to fix that very bias when it comes to the people, the, the race, the gender, the people who are currently working within AI. Are you finding that they can tackle the bias within the data as well? And do you think the fact that more people of color at the table building the algorithms will help with monitoring the bias within the data? Well, let's, let's talk about the table. When we talk about having more um, minorities or marginalized communities at the table, we also have to um, embed power, authority, and influence uh, because uh, it is not enough to be at the table if we don't have uh, power, authority, or influence to raise those questions of ethics, to raise those questions of we see something wrong and we need to stop right here. A great person said to me, Angel, when we start building these systems, we need to first ask 
what problem are we solving? And I would go a step further and say, are we creating bigger problems than we're solving? And so when we're talking about having people at the table and we're talking about looking at this data, I agree with Meredith, we really have to start doing an audit and trying to figure out first, where's this data coming from? Who's saying this data is correct and who's saying it it has already gone through a process of cleansing? And so when we talk about these things of having diversity and bringing people to the table, Let's never forget our authority and influence. And that was Angel Bush, founder of Black Women in AI, and Meredith Broussard, NYU professor and author of More Than a Glitch, with Bloomberg's Caroline Hyde and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg Equality. And coming up, June is Pride Month, as we've been talking about, dedicated to celebrating LGBTQ plus communities. And to mark Pride Month, we're bringing together some people in the early stages of their careers, They'll share their thoughts with us. You're listening to a special Juneteenth holiday edition of Bloomberg Fest. And this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Bloomberg 1130. To Washington, D.C. Bloomberg 991. To Boston. Bloomberg 1061. To San Francisco. Bloomberg 960. To the country. Sirius XM Channel 119. And around the globe. The Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini with a special Juneteenth holiday edition of Bloomberg Best. Now, June is Pride Month, dedicated to celebrating LGBTQ plus communities. And to mark Pride Month, we're bringing together four people, Ed, in the early stages of careers in finance, in law, and in engineering. And Denise, they come to us from London, where Bloomberg Daybreak Europe's Stephen Carroll spoke to them for this special report. My name's Chloe Worley. My pronouns are they, she, and I'm a data engineer at BP. My name is Oren Devlin. My pronouns are he, him, and I work within City Global Sourcing Staffing Office. I'm Jackie Ruldegar. I'm a litigation lawyer at Hogan Levels International LLP. My pronouns are she and her. My name is Harry Randall. My pronouns are he, him. Um, I'm an associate in the UK Investment Bank at Jefferies International Limited. I have previously worked in organisations where I wouldn't have been comfortable in being out in the workplace. And I suppose that that was a factor whenever I was looking for new roles and new opportunities. I I went into the recruitment process within City knowing where they stood on social issues. And and that was a key aspect of where I wanted to work next. When I first entered the legal industry, my Monday morning routine typically consisted of rehearsing lines on the tube to the much dreaded question, what did you do at the weekend? Because I was terrified that if I revealed too much, I would out myself. At that point, I was introduced to a lawyer at another law firm, and she told me that overall her experiences had been very positive, and that really calmed me down. And so, yeah, now I'm very open about my sexuality at work and and I'm very comfortable to be out. When I first joined industry straight out of university, I was very much closeted. Having been previously very out and very vocally actively involved in the community, there's this really interesting statistic, actually, research from 2018 that states that over 40% of young people, that's people ages 18 to 25, go back in the closet when they start their first job. And that was definitely my initial experience. As soon as I realized that it was a safe space and as soon as I saw other people in the industry, in the office, at work, being out and that being okay, I immediately reverted to how I had always been, very vocal, very active in the community. 
moving into the workplace was the first time that I was fully out as a gay man. And I think particularly at university, the decision to actually come out was something that was taken out of my control because words travel quick. Uh, so I was very keen to make sure that when I moved into the workplace, I was in control of that. And I chose on what terms I told people. I picked the right conversations at the right time because you will never stop coming out and making sure that you feel comfortable doing that around certain people is driven by role models who have done that in the past. You can see from their experience that actually everything turns out quite all right. When I started as a trainee solicitor at Clifford Chance, I had the privilege of meeting more senior lesbian lawyers and, you know, they were fine. They'd been at the firm throughout their whole career and that gave me a lot of confidence and I became the firm's LGBTQ rep. But when I left Clifford Chance to go to a US firm, I didn't see any role models uh, and it was quite difficult um, because it's very, it is a distraction being in the closet. You're wasting a lot of energy thinking about, am I going to be found out? You, you, you know, you're, it's quite cagey in your answers. You can't really bond with people as well because you're sort of hiding things. And so role models, I can't emphasise the importance of them because visibility matters. If you don't meet people like you, you can start to think there's something wrong with the way that you look. I think when we talk about leadership and role models you know city has had a milestone moment in the financial services industry with having jane fraser as the first female ceo of a wall street bank you know that change in that culture you know has brought with it representation and progress for all marginalized groups and voices within our organization we're actively talking about the conversation about representation you know in terms of lgbtq plus people we have a very um, very firm target um, of 3.5% to reflect the demographics within society. And in terms of the role modeling, we now have very senior leaders on the trading floor who are now more comfortable in coming out and being out in the workplace, which has historically been misogynistic, chauvinistic. Intersectionality is something that I do take into consideration for everything, really. I think the best DNI initiatives do have an intersectional focus. When we look at discrimination, um, we have to consider the fact that characteristics can be, you know, complex and uh, and interconnected. So you can't separate my blackness from my uh, from my gender and my um, my sexuality. They're all intertwined, and so I may experience. Um, homophobia differently to a white woman on account of my uh, race and I may experience racism differently to a black man on account of my gender. And having those things in mind is very very important. We simply cannot continue to do things the way that has always been done because it isn't working anymore right. So for the energy industry it's more about shifting mindsets and getting people on board with the fact that change has to happen. I think there are in each company, in each business, a group of dedicated allies, employees, resource networks that are on board with that. I really want to see that happen, but it's about how we bring the rest of the industry in and meet them where they're at so that we can change together. What I would love to see from corporates moving forward is for us to progress some, some form of a dual track process in that companies have an obligation to protect all of their employees, be it sexual orientation, gender or other. But I think we also, if we can, need to try and use our platform to raise awareness outside of our immediate environments. There are a lot of people in the world who aren't in as fortunate positions as we are to have that voice to be able to express how they feel and how they think. And actually, for some, the decision is being taken out of their hands and they don't have a say at all. So I would really like to see corporates progressing sort of outside of their immediate as well. I think that City has definitely 
used its platform and its authority to enact change for the betterment of the LGBTQ plus community in the context of Northern Ireland, where we have more than 3,500 colleagues. City did put their head above the parapet to really lead on the corporate um, campaign in the move towards marriage equality in 2018. And certainly, you know, we're not afraid to stand up for our colleagues and the wider LGBTQ plus community, because at a very basic level, it's the right thing to do. Just remember that Pride Month is just one month. We're all LGBTQIA for the rest of the year. And I think allied with that is have pun intended um, having regular training sessions i think one-off training sessions on microaggressions and unconscious bias are useful but you wouldn't expect to be able to run the london marathon after an hour's training a more you know it may be having the training sessions alongside appraisals or onboarding or when people are going for promotions be much more effective and useful all year round i think also making sure that pride month isn't viewed as a tick box exercise it's a 12-month job effectively being a member of the lgbtqia community. I think it takes a lot of work alongside your day job to be involved in such initiatives. It can be tiring. It can be something that you get to the end of the day and you think, I really don't want to do this, but it's the right thing to do. And I'm going to do it because I believe in it passionately. So making sure that you can maintain that momentum is key. One of the things that we like to say at BP is pride never stops. It's this huge month in June. We have it every year, but it is all year round for us. So I think the energy that comes out of June, the people that we get on board who start to understand a bit more about the community, about intersectionality, about big issues that the community are facing, lean into that after June and continue that work. Pride is a really important date in the calendar, but it should be an opportunity to reflect on achievements throughout the year, but also looking towards what what is next and i think a healthy way to do that is to engage with the key sector organizations you know for ourselves we're very proud of the work we do as a financial services organization but we're not always experts on lgbtq plus issues and that's where we partner and where we collaborate with key sector organizations to ensure that we are doing right by our community and you know in the current climate i think it's really important to remember that the origins of pride, the leaders in those days were black trans women of color. And we need to be mindful and cognizant that, you know, those are groups who are being heavily targeted right now. And and we need to ensure that we do our best to protect those groups um, from further persecution. And that was a group of people Bloomberg Radio's Stephen Carroll brought together to mark Pride Month. People from the LGBTQ plus community in the early stages of their careers in finance, law, and engineering. And coming up... A look at the importance of allocating funds to women-owned businesses. You're listening to a special Juneteenth holiday edition of Bloomberg Best. And this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Best on Bloomberg Radio. 
This is a special Juneteenth holiday edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And Denise, it's also Pride Month, putting even more focus on issues of equality for people. And uh, there are a lot of different components to equality, of course, including efforts to get more capital to women-owned businesses. Now, Rose Vitale, managing partner at DRA Family Office, is focused on encouraging family offices to allocate more assets to women-owned businesses. And she explains to Bloomberg's Matt Miller and Carol Masser why this effort is so important. My background is I'm originally from Detroit, uh, suburbs of the Detroit area. So I grew up with um, essentially no money. Uh, and, and so it taught me to really be gritty in, in terms of building a company. And uh, I had no means of, uh, of education or resources in terms of of financing. So I had to really build it from the ground up, Um, became one of the largest partners for Cricket Wireless before we sold the AT&T in 2013 and then went off to help uh, T-Mobile with Metro PCS. So I had a really long ride with wireless and um, that's basically my background and really looking to change the flow of capital to women. Women get less than 2% of the venture funding. It's actually 1.9, I think, um, as of this year. You got your uh, starter. You made your money then in telecoms. Do you focus when you're doing venture capital on women in telecoms or do you look across a broader spectrum? Oh, I look across a broader spectrum. I'm no longer involved in telecommunications. And so... Uh, it definitely taught me everything I knew in business. Well, let's talk about it. Well, first of all, Matt made a point, and we're assuming we know the answer, but how much, uh, how many women startups are there out there, essentially? Are, are women starting businesses at the same rate as men in terms of, is that right, Matt? That's what you Yeah, that's what I was about. wondering. You know, of, you know, all of the startups, how many of them are uh, founded by or, or in, involve heavily women? So roughly about 40 to 50% are actually started by women. Um, And they essentially, they they don't have a lot of access to capital. And and that's one of the things I really want to change just because I knew how difficult it was for me. And so it's, it's really my purpose of giving back because I think that you don't know what you don't know and what you don't know in business can hurt you. Um, whether you're going out there to raise series A, B, C, um, it's important that you have the right people surrounding you because if you don't, it can be very detrimental to your uh, experience in business. So if most women are bootstrapping their businesses, then um, it seems like they're better able to deal with adversity or at least they're uh, they're learning that lesson as they do it. Do you talk with other venture capitalists about why they're not making the decision to give more uh, women money? You know, that that's something that we have discussed. And, and I think that it really comes down to unconscious bias. Um, some of these, you know, men that I am now, you know, work with, you know, they just say that, you know, generally they allocate capital to people who look like them, who go to the same clubs as them. So I think it's not per se, you know, not wanting to allocate capital, but I think it's just not being aware of it because, you know, they're allocating it in a way that just makes them feel comfortable. You know, Bloomberg had a story a few years ago, though, that talked specifically, and and mind you, I think it was maybe either coming off the pandemic, that even female venture capitalists were less inclined to invest in female started businesses. So is it just a case that we haven't seen enough women started businesses that become blockbusters like a Google or 
an apple and that's part of the problem or what? Yeah, great question. You know, I, I don't necessarily think it's that. I think that there's some really innovative companies that are out there who are ran by women. Um, I, I just think that it really is the lack of access to capital. I mean, think about it. Yeah. Capital is the blood of a company. And if you don't have access to it, how are you able to scale a company to to like a Google or an Apple or something of this nature? It's it's nearly impossible. That was Rose Vitale, managing partner at DRA Family Office with Bloomberg's Carol Masser and Matt Miller. And that is it for this special Juneteenth holiday edition of Bloomberg Best. I'm Ed Baxter. And I'm Denise Pellegrini. And this is Bloomberg. Stay with us. Top stories and global business headlines are coming up right now. <laughs> 